You're about to hear a message that was preached at Calvary Fellowship in Miramar, Florida. At Calvary, we exist to help people take their next step with God. And we pray that this message helps you do just that. How's everybody doing? We are so glad that you're here. Happy Father's Day. So a few years ago, my wife did this for me. She uh, had my kids fill out this form that was called My Dad is a Superhero, and it was basically all these questions. Uh, the kids were younger back then. I think Mia was nine, and uh, Xander was six, and Livy was three. And so it was a series of questions in hopes to encourage me as a dad, which it did at times, and then at other times it made me wonder if these kids know me at all. And uh, so the first fill-in was, my dad can run as fast as, and my daughter Mia wrote a tiger, which isn't true, but I did feel good about myself. Um, Livy, my dad can run as fast as, she wrote a flower. I'm not exactly sure how fast they go, but I don't think it's very good. Xander wrote, my dad is faster than a buffalo. And of all of God's creatures, I think a buffalo might be the slowest. And uh, so when it said, what does my dad like to do? My, Mia wrote, play guitar. That's good. And uh, Livy, through careful observation, my dad likes to. And she wrote, nap. <laughs> Got to rest up if I'm going to beat those buffalo. And uh, for my favorite food, Mia and Xander, they, my dad's favorite food is, they, uh, Mia and Xander wrote steak, which is the correct answer. Livy wrote cinnamon toast crunch, which is also the correct answer. Anyway, so, and then uh, the, my dad is really good at, Mia wrote making us laugh, and Livy wrote being encouraging, Xander wrote watching TV. It's, it's an applied skill. And um, so uh, my dad can lift, Mia wrote, my dad can lift a 20-pound ball which by the way is not very heavy. And uh, Livy wrote, my dad can lift a basketball. And, uh, but Xander wrote, my dad can lift a bed because if I'm gonna watch TV and nap, it's really gotta be at the right angle. And uh, the only question that they answered the same thing was my dad can fix and they all wrote anything. Which it really makes me wonder if these kids have been paying attention at all because I don't, I don't fix anything without first breaking it worse. And then I fix it. And so, but to them, I've got this reputation that I'm, I'm the fix-it guy. But dads, if I can just share this with you, uh, your kids are modeling their lives after you. And that's, that's a high call. Um, that you are explaining the world to them. And that's defining reality. That we live in a world where our culture thinks dads are unnecessary. It's why every dad on TV is portrayed as a complete moron. And, uh, and a masculine dad is considered toxic. Let me, let me tell you something. Um, the sickness that we find in our culture is what's toxic. And the antidote is godly dads that are going to lead their families and protect them. And friends, that's the hill I'm going to die on. Because the crisis that we are facing in our culture is one of fatherlessness. And we need godly fathers more than any other time. And so... Thank you. <laughs> but listen, that's why when you see a loving family, it stands out. I mean, I remember one time when the kids were really little, I took the three my three kids to Chick-fil-A without my wife, and people looked at me like I was some kind of saint. I walked in, and people were like, oh, 
is he from the future? You know, I mean, it was incredible. And so, but, but, but let me say this, and this is important. Um, I, I, I spent four years running a college. I've started two companies. I've planted a church. I've written seven books, and I have a master's degree in theology. And taking those three kids to Chick-fil-A was one of the hardest things I've ever done. <laughs> How, to get kids to eat and not harm themselves is a minor miracle. And I remember I was sitting there, and so it was the way uh, uh, Livy was sitting next to me. Livy was in a high chair at the time. And so I'm cutting the, uh, the chicken for Livy to be able to eat. And my son, who's sitting across from me, he's like, uh, Dad, I look over. Xander has taken his shirt off for no reason. And I'm like, hey, Mark Wahlberg, why don't you put your shirt back on? And uh, like, what in the world is happening? And so while I'm, I'm telling him to put his shirt back on, Mia is eating Xander's chicken. I'm like, will you stop eating your brother's chicken? Eat your chicken. And then while I'm telling Mia to stop, Livy is taking all the chicken that I've cut up and just dropping it on the floor. She was like Salt Bay with chicken as just kind of chocolate. And, and, and I, this is why all moms have like that particular look on their face at all times. You know what I'm talking about, that Lord Jesus, I need you to come back this afternoon. <laughs> or we're all going to see you anyway. You know, that kind of look. And so, but... But listen, people, people are looking for godly families as a model. We see it happen, and we see it here in the local church as families um, start walking with God and take, put Jesus at the center of their lives. And, and it's what we're going to see in our text today as a model, not just for churches, for families, but for believers. So we find ourselves in part five of a series that, if you saw the, the open, it's called The Movement. And the reason why we call it that is because the story of Jesus didn't end at the resurrection. It became a movement that changed the world, and you and I are a product of that. But if you haven't been with us, let me just kind of give you a, a brief overview to get you up to speed. Jesus, at the beginning of the book of Acts in chapter 1, tells them that the Holy Spirit is going to come. He's going to come upon them, and that they're going to be empowered for ministry. And we see that happen in chapter 2. Uh, the, the Spirit comes upon them and they start speaking in other languages. Other people that are there understand and they're like, what is that even, how can these things be? And then Peter stands up and preaches this incredible sermon and the, uh, explaining what happened. And then after the message, 3,000 people believe and are saved. And now Luke, our author, is going to give us a little bit of background before we get into the, back into the narrative of the story. And he's going to show us what the church is involved in on a daily basis. Because sometimes one of the things that can happen in the book of Acts is like, man, this happened and that was amazing. And then the miraculous happened and then the miraculous. And we're like, man, this is happening like every day. Remember, the book of Acts is taking place over the course of a 30-year period. So what happens in uh, one chapter may be a year or two before something else happens. But what, what Luke is going to show us is this was the day-to-day -day activity of the church. These are the things that the church was engaging in on a daily basis. And listen, the thing that is so great is that as it's happening daily, the church is expanding and growing and developing. And guess what's happening? People are expanding and growing and developing. And, and we see the model that God gives us for personal spiritual growth, how a church can be a healthy place where people engage and that they can see their, their spiritual growth take off. So we're going to start in Acts chapter 2. We're going to start in verse 42, and here's what we read. It says, and they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, in the breaking of bread, and in prayers. Now, if you pause there and give me your attention, three things we're going to look at for God's model for the church. The first is this, is that the church is a place of continued growth. 
Now, I want you to see something here because I think it's really important. There are four activities that Luke says the church was involved in on a daily basis. Four things, and they are coupled together. It's the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, the breaking of bread and prayer. And that's a very Jewish way of sharing ideas. You see that a lot in the poetry books like Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, where ideas are um, paired together. It's technically called couplets. And here the believers are continuing steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, fellowship, breaking of bread, pairs. What's the apostles' doctrine? The word doctrine is this Greek word didache. What does it mean? It means teaching. I believe, and this is in the capital C church, what I see globally, the number one thing that's missing in churches today is teaching. There's lots of preaching. There's lots of hype. There's plenty of dancing bears and wild stuff going on, but very little teaching. And it shouldn't shock us that this is why the church globally is completely ill-equipped to handle the cultural shifts that we're experiencing. And this is why at Calvary, for the last 22 years, we've been doing one thing, and that is teaching through the Bible verse by verse. And you know why we do that? If I'm being, honestly, the reason why we do it is because I believe it's the most honest way to teach the Bible. Because we aren't avoiding any passages, we aren't skipping anything, we aren't only teaching the sections that we like or prefer or are our favorite part. Because listen, and listen, I mean, humanly speaking, if it were up to me, as to what we would teach, I would only teach on two topics. I would teach on marriage and Bible prophecy. That's it. Those are my favorite things to talk about. And so, but you got to teach about more than that. And guess what? People are interested. Um, you want to know what the top three things that people are interested in hearing sermons about? Number one, sex. Number two, the end times. Number three, will there be sex in the end times? Those are the three topics that people want to hear about. Now, but that's number one. The second reason is, is that not just is it the most honest way to teach, but the second thing is that verse-by-verse -verse teaching is the best possible way for you to grow. If you've been with us, if you were with us in the 14 months that we taught through the Gospel of Matthew, if you were there and we got done, you know that book. And you know where stuff is found. You've memorized some verses and God's been speaking to you. And I'm telling you this, I am so grateful that when I, 30 years ago when I became a Christian and my wife and I walked into a church uh, as, as brand new believers, the pastor was teaching through the Bible, and I'm glad he wasn't deconstructing his faith or hadn't figured out what he believed. Instead, I'm grateful that he was just lovingly teaching the truth. And there was no hype, and he wasn't yelling at us. And what is up with preachers yelling? Like, what is going on there? I'm sorry, I'm almost 50 years old. I'm done with people yelling at me. And, uh, <laughs> and then he wasn't trying to hype us up. Tell your neighbor something. Like, let me tell you something. If you are in a service and you have to tell your neighbor something, the pastor's not doing what he's, but no, we're listening to you. You tell my neighbor what he needs to hear. That's the whole point. And if you can't, give me the mic. I'll finish. You can sit down. And you tell your neighbor, I'm done. And so, but anyway, don't even get me started on that. That makes me crazy. But you know, the church I went to, um, they had a lending library. I'm dating myself here, but they had this lending library where you could borrow cassettes every week. And you could borrow three cassettes a week. And so I, I became a member of the lending library and I would borrow three cassettes on Sunday and then I would come back on Wednesday and I'd borrow three more. Within two years, I kid you not, I had gone through the entire cassette library and it was just, I mean, I was at the end. They were like, Bob, there's nothing else. 
And I'd be like, well, what else do you got? They're like, well, we have a parenting seminar. I mean, I was 20 years old. They're like, we have a parenting seminar you haven't listened to. And then we just did something about getting off drugs. I'm like, well, I think I'll become a parenting seminar. I'll do the parenting seminar. And I've never done drugs, but you never know, know how life's going to turn out. I'll take that one too. And uh, so anyway, <laughs> but I want you to notice this. And this is really important. It says this, that they continued steadfastly. That wasn't the leaders. That was the people. They were continuing steadfastly. What does that word mean? It means that they were diligently pressing in. You see, it doesn't matter what the church does if you don't show up. Because spiritual growth happens when you make an effort to be here. And this is why people are like, you know, I watch online sometimes. Like, really? Uh, listen, online is fine in a pinch. You're not feeling well. You're out of town. Your child is ill. That's what online is there for. But if you're watching online because you don't have the energy to put on pants, uh, now we got a problem. Because that, listen, it's not possible to grow to maturity if, if you aren't just making the effort to be here. And that's not the church's fault. We've got to take personal responsibility for our spiritual growth. The second thing they were involved in was not just the apostles' doctrine, but also fellowship. The Greek word for fellowship is this word koinonia. It's a word that's used multiple times in the New Testament. And it means this. It means to have something in common. Now, this is really important because we tend to think of, in Western culture, we tend to think of fellowship as hanging out. Like, oh, so good having fellowship at Chili's, those nachos. You know, like, that's, okay, that's lunch. That's not fellowship per se. It can be fellowship, but it's not fellowship per se. Fellowship means that you are united around common beliefs and a common cause. And I think the best description of this is if you've ever seen the fellowship of the ring, whether the book or the movie, if you've ever seen the movie, if you start now, you can probably get done by midnight, uh, or at least the first one. And, but listen, the fellowship of the ring is a group of people who come together for a common purpose, right? They're going to take the, the ring of power to Mount Doom. That's the, that's the goal. And this was an eclectic group. So it's not that they were all very similar. They were very, very different. There's only two men, Aragorn, uh, Aragorn and uh, Boromir, a wizard, an elf, a dwarf, and four hobbits. But it wasn't about them being the same that made it a fellowship. What made it a fellowship is that they were united for the common cause that they had. And that's one of the things that I love about Calvary. People come to Calvary like, I just can't believe how diverse it is. And we're diverse in every possible way. And that is that there's people from all walks of life. We're different generationally. We have different backgrounds. I love that we have bikers that are sitting next to abuelas. And I love the fact that we got a guy, you know, guys who, hey, I just got out of jail. They're sitting next to the cop that put them there. And I love that. And, so, and the thing that we have in common is the Lord Jesus and the work that he's doing in us and through us and for us. So it's the apostles' doctrine and fellowship. The, set, the third thing is the breaking of bread. This is the nachos part. This is that they were doing life together. In the ancient world, when you shared a meal with someone, uh, it, was, it was so different than now because now you're, you're sharing a meal. They, they would take the bread, they would rip it, and then they would, uh, they would take the sauce and they would dunk in the sauce. And listen, I mean, these guys weren't like, I mean, they were like going, you know, wrist deep in the sauce. And uh, there were no rules about double dipping in the ancient world. You just went for it and took as many bites as you wanted. But it was this picture. When you would share a meal, it was the same food that's nourishing me is now nourishing you. And we're becoming one through the meal that we're, that we're taking. So some of you might remember this picture. Some of you are not old enough to remember. But I remember this day vividly. 
Um, this is in 1993 when the Oslo Accords were, were signed. And so there is, um, this is on the lawn of the White House. This is the PLO leader, Yasser Arafat. This is the uh, Prime Minister of Israel, Yitzhak Rabin, and of course, President Clinton. And um, by the way, I met President Clinton uh, a few years ago, and I, I, I cannot believe, and I will regret this till the day that I die, that I did not talk to him. I talked to him for a few minutes, and I didn't ask him about this. And I, it kills me that I didn't ask him about this. Um, but I, when I met President Clinton, I, I took a picture with him, and then I, <laughs> I posted it online. That was a bad decision. And uh, people lost their minds. One of the people that lost their minds was my very Cuban dad. Uh, He's like, oye, hay problema en la familia. And, uh, there's, and uh, he's like, there's problems in the family. People are hearing about that anyway. And he's like, <laughs> it's okay. It's okay. What were you doing? I'm like, the office of the president called me. What am I supposed to do? And he's like, I don't know. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Just, the office of the president calls you, you go. And uh, anyway, so that's another story. Don't email me about this. So just relax. I get enough grief as it is, all right? So, but anyway, so this, back to this picture. Um, Yitzhak Rabin and Yasser Arafat shook hands. They spoke. They took pictures, but they would not share a meal together. You know why? Because they knew what sharing a meal meant, and they were not becoming one. If you've ever wondered why the Pharisees came unglued every time Jesus ate with a sinner, went into a sinner's home, it's because of this. They knew what it meant. By the way, Jesus knew what it meant too. And this, my friends, is why you and I need other Christians in our lives to break bread with and, and do life with because we need believers in our lives that are gonna walk the journey with us. And you know what happens when they're walking the journey with us? They're giving us counsel. They're helping us through difficult times. But that's why it's coupled together with the breaking of bread and prayer. That not only are we doing life together, but we're praying for each other because that's what happens when you're involved in someone else's life. You need friends that you can vent to at times, and you need friends that just like, hey, I just need, I'm going through this, I need prayer. And you can tell them what's happening, not so much so they can fix it, but so that they can pray for you. And by the way, this is one of the reasons why we do everything we can to get people into groups, why we do everything we can to get people involved in serving, because you need friends who are believers and that are walking with God. And when, by the way, all four of these things are happening in your life, what we just read in verse 42, there's gonna be tremendous growth in your life. Look what happens next in verse 43. It says this, and then fear came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. Now all who believed were together and, all, and had all things in common and sold their possessions and goods and divided them among all as anyone had need. And if you pause there and give me your attention, if the first thing that we said is God's model for the church is that the church is a place of continued growth. Then the second thing that's important for us to note is that the church is a place for radical generosity. Now, generosity is a little bit of a strange topic. And if you're new to Calvary, let me just answer the question that's, in, that's happening in your mind. You're like, oh, here we go. Here comes the shakedown. Um, so, all right. Good news is there's no shakedown. So you can be pretty calm about that. We're pretty low-key on the subject of giving. Have you ever noticed we don't even pass a plate like every church in the world does? I'm like, oh, I never noticed that. Yeah, well, star, the more you know. And uh, so anyway, but the second issue is, is that everyone sees themselves as generous. Now listen, whether as an associate pastor or senior pastor, I've been a pastor for just about 25 years now. And I have never, listen to me, never had a person 
contact me to schedule a meeting and sit down to say, Pastor, I need help. I'm a greedy person. Not one, not one. Why? Because people don't see themselves as greedy even if they don't practice generosity. And the reason is, is because most of us have generous thoughts. We're like, you know, I, don't, I, I can't do anything, but if I, man, if I, if I won the lotto, you know how generous I'd be? And, and, and listen, generosity is part of the basics of Christianity. The problem is the consumer culture that we live in has distorted our views of money and possessions. And if we're being honest, some pastors have given the church a black eye when it comes to shady practices and over-promising things when it comes to giving. And that is absolutely true. But here's the thing that I know. When God asks us to give, or technically God would ask us to tithe, that is give the first 10% of our income, several things happen. The first thing that it does is it forces us to know how much is going out and coming in. That's a, in a very practical way. The second thing is, is that it forces us to trust God, knowing that God will take the 90% that's blessed and it'll go further than the 100% that he's not involved in. And the third thing is, and this is so important, whatever you give to, your heart will follow. And that's a biblical principle. It's something that Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 6. He said, do not lay up for yourselves treasure on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. That is a fact of life. Whatever you invest in, your heart will by nature follow. So uh, my birthday is in October. I'm telling you that just to give you guys enough time. <laughs> but uh, so last year, my, some of my friends got together and, uh, and bought me a guitar. And uh, such a kind gift. And the year before, someone that I don't know who it was... Um, put a guitar in my office, my dream guitar, put it in my office and just with a, a, a note. Um, and, you know, anyway, so kind. And so I'm driving with my son and he's like, dad, you've gotten a new guitar two years in a row. How do you feel? I said, very excited about this year. And, uh, <laughs> and so, and I'll tell you, uh, there, people in this church are so kind to me because if I talk about something, and I'll just make an offhanded comment. It will show up. So I got to be careful about what I talk about because one time I was talking about uh, how I, I love nerds, um, the, the candy, not the people. Uh, no, I like the people too. I'm, I'm one of them. Um, but, but I love nerds. It's, it's one of my favorite candies. And that week, the biggest box of nerds that I've ever seen in my life, I mean, this, it was bigger than any book I own. And it, it lasted a couple of days. And um, so... <laughs> One, and I've talked about Oreos and whatever. Um, anyway, one time I talked about Oreos and I started getting these subscription boxes to Oreos. First of all, the fact that Oreo does a subscription box is reason enough to love America. <laughs> all right? But anyway, so I, every month I would get these deluxe, you know, uh, Oreos of all different sizes and shapes and flavors. And it was incredible every month until it ran out. It was very sad for all of us. I, I've never seen the staff cry that much as when the, the subscription ran out. But now I, I, I got to be careful what I say. And, and so I, 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 I make the joke that the only thing I talk about now is Teslas and Bitcoin. That's it, <laughs> as far as what I like. And so, um, but what happened is a couple years ago, a friend of mine bought me Bitcoin for my birthday. And, and so, you know, he's like, hey, I'm going to do this. And then uh, you got to download like 50 apps. And anyway, it's how people even 
just don't get bored just in the process of obtaining this is amazing to me. And I was like, hey, man, I'm just going to go with like a regular piggy bank and a little hammer. Uh, that's where, anyway. So, but he gets, he gets this for me. And so Xander and I were, some, I forget where we were. And, um, and, and he's like, hey, dad, how many Bitcoins do you own? I'm like, well, I don't own a whole Bitcoin, but that 0.00000875, that's all mine. And, uh, and, and listen, and I'm going to tell you the weird thing that happened to me is that I started, I started checking the price of Bitcoin every day. I started getting alerts on my phone whenever there was a fluctuation. Uh, I started following a YouTube channel about uh, stuff about Bitcoin and, and, and crypto and all that. And listen, all because someone put treasure there with my name on it. My heart instinctively followed. And my friends, that is simply a fact of life. Whatever you want your heart to follow, put resources there, and your heart can't do anything but move in that direction. And guess what? When you put resources to do good and invest in the kingdom of God, you're going to care. You're going to want to be here. You're going to want to know what's happening here. Hey, what's going on? What's, what are we doing? What's the next thing? You're going to care about things of the kingdom. That's what the early believers did. They gave and people were helped and blessed, and their giving changed the world. Listen, within a hundred years, Christian generosity was so well known that non-Christian writers wrote about it. There was a guy, I'll show you his picture. His name is Lucius of Samosota. You're like, oh, he's from Florida? No, that's Sarasota. This is Samosota. And uh, or Samosata. And anyway. And so this was a Greek writer. This guy hated Christians. He hated Christianity. And even though he looks like he could have been a member of NSYNC, um, he's, uh, he was not happy with Christians. And let me tell you, one of his books, here's what he says. He says, I was impressed, it was impressed on them by their original lawgiver, that is Jesus, that they are all brothers from the moment they are converted and deny the gods of Greece and worship the crucified sage and live after his laws. All this they take quite on faith with the result that they despise all worldly goods alike, regarding them merely as common property. I mean, that is amazing to me that Christians were so generous that a guy who's not even a Christian is like, what is these people's problem? They're so generous. Why, why don't they buy stuff? Why, why aren't they interested in having things? Why is it helping other people is so important to them? Don't you just hate them for it? It's, just, it's insane. Now listen, the, on the topic, you know how people will say this, you know the Bible promotes slavery. Christianity promotes slavery, which tells me that people understand neither Christianity nor slavery in the first century. Listen, Christians were persecuted under the Roman Empire for the first 300 years of the church's existence until um, Constantine became a Christian and uh, issued what's called the Edict of Toleration. But uh, St. Augustine, writing in the 5th century, starts writing about how throughout the history of the church, Christians, because they couldn't change it politically, they put their money where their mouth was and were using all of their resources to buy people's freedom from slavery, house them, clothe them, and help them start a new life. My friends, Christian generosity changed the world. Christians invented hospitals, orphanages, invented relief for the poor, invented the idea that every person, uh, who, no matter who you are, has um, universal human rights. Historians have proven this, that this all traces back to early Christianity. And we live in a culture where 
uh, that, that's pushing back, that you only have personal fulfillment through more stuff. Oh, and by the way, one of the things that happens is people will read this and say they, had, they all had all things in common. It's like, oh, they're practicing communism. In fact, there was a New York Times article written a couple of years ago that talked about how Christians should be communists because of this verse. Now, uh, first of all, never get your theology from the New York Times. In fact, I'd recommend not even getting your news from the New York Times, but that's a different sermon. But the second thing is this wasn't communism. Communism is when everything is taken by force, everything that individuals have is taken by force and then redistributed, of course, with the elites getting much more than everybody else. This wasn't communism. This was generosity. This is why even in the Great Depression, that charitable giving was still at 3.3%, and there were bread lines. Today, it's 2.5%, and we stand in line to buy iPhones. And here's what I'm asking you to do. I'm asking you to make an intentional decision to be generous. Now, does that include Calvary? Yes, if this is your church home, generosity should be to, to your home church should be part of that. But it shouldn't stop there. It, but it might mean that you have to rearrange your life in such a way so that you can be generous. And if you want, in the fall, we'll have our financial peace class and you can take that. Um, and I'll tell you this, my, my wife and I were first married. We had credit card debt. And we made a decision that we were going to get out of credit card debt. We thought it was going to take us five years. It took us two years. And in all of that, we were faithful tithers, putting God first financially. And God started blessing us like we couldn't, things we never even imagined that God started doing. I was finishing my undergrad in theology, and I get called into the dean's office, and I owed a balance. And I couldn't graduate until the balance was zeroed out. And if you've been at Calvary, then you maybe have maybe heard me tell this story before. Somebody was going to help me. Someone in my family was going to help me, and they kind of bailed out on me. Like, hey, I can't help you, but, you know, you'll figure it out. Like, yeah, I'm trying to, we'll see what happens. Anyway, I was stuck, and I just said, look, I can probably do like 50 bucks a month, but it, 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 it's, I mean, it's going to take me five years to get this balance squared away. The next week, I get called back into the office, and I get told that the balance had been paid for. And I, to this day, I still have no idea who paid the balance for me, and I mean, but Carrie and I were rejoicing and crying. We just couldn't believe it. And I, I never forget that. And I remember telling Carrie, someday I want to do that for someone. And this past year, um, I found someone that I know that was in the same situation. Um, stuck, couldn't move on because of a balance. And I went home and talked to my wife and I said, Care, I think this is our moment. And we paid the bill. Let me tell you something. I have never had more joy paying a bill in my life. I, I, you know, I've never gotten joy paying FPL. <laughs> I don't, I don't get, when I just hit that automatic payment, I don't get it. I don't get joy. I get like a low level rage every time I pay FPL. But listen, but there is a gener, there is a joy that comes from giving, that comes from generosity, that, that is a joy that comes from God. This is why in 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 9, Paul says this, each one of us, that each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. This verse is why there's never been a shakedown at Calvary in almost 23 years, because we're not making promises that if you give to the church, you're going to be a millionaire. And will God bless you? I believe so. Not only has that been my experience, I believe that that's a promise that, that God makes. But listen, 
And you know why this passage that we just read is so powerful in uh, chapter 9 of 2 Corinthians? If you read a little bit earlier, what sets this up is that this is modeling after Jesus. He sa- Paul says this earlier. He says, Jesus, who was rich, became poor, so that in his poverty you might become rich. And this is him becoming human, sacrificing everything so that we can inherit the blessings of God. Listen, we never give because of what we think we're going to get. We give because generosity is at the heart of what it means to follow Jesus. And that's how people change the world because Jesus had changed their world. And lastly, look what happens in verse 46. It says, So continuing daily with one accord in the temple... And breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. Last thing, the church is a place for intentional evangelism. We're told that the Lord was adding to the church daily people who were being saved. That wasn't an accident. You see, and it always happens this way. The church is acting like the church. They're loving each other, exemplifying Christian community. They're preaching the gospel, the love of God, the forgiveness of sins through the Lord Jesus. And those who are around simply can't resist. You know, there is this teaching that goes around saying that Christians shouldn't preach the gospel. We should just go around doing good and then people will hear that we're Christians and then they'll, they'll somehow be curious. Let me tell you something. I totally disagree with that. We don't just do good things. We do good things in Jesus' name. And there's a difference. And we do that because everything we do is connected to the gospel because the gospel is what has transformed us in the first place. You see, this is what this section of Acts chapter 2 teaches us, that it is impossible to grow to maturity as a Christian without your involvement in a local church. Now, you can learn things by yourself and read books and study, and I recommend all of that. But I have never met a mature Christian who wasn't deeply involved in their church. Regularly attending, bringing their family, serving, using their gifts. But the question that we have to answer is who do you want to influence you? And you actually get to choose. When I first started playing guitar, I I listened to certain guitar players over and over because I wanted their playing to influence how I played. And I knew something that you innately know as well. That who you spend the most time with, who you look up to, who you want to be like is eventually who you'll become. So if you say, I want to be more loving and gracious and wise and generous and principled and I want to be unshakable, then hang around with Christians like that. Do you know what the word Christian means? In fact, the word Christian doesn't even exist until Acts chapter 11. When there's a church in Antioch, this was the first big church outside of Israel. And the church was growing and people were coming to know Jesus. And the people who weren't followers of Jesus came up with an insult called Christian. It means literally little Christ. And they would say that to mock the believers. The early followers of Jesus loved it so much, they kept it. I mean, could you imagine that? The people trying to insult the followers of Jesus. Next thing you know, they're wearing shirts that say Christian on them. Like, hey, we came up with it. Yeah, but we patented it, so don't try. And, uh, and so, but listen, it's one of the many things that I love about the early Christians because that insult revealed something about them, that even the enemies of Jesus and the enemies of the church saw Jesus in his followers.
That, my friends, is real influence. And that's my prayer for us. Let's pray together. And Lord, we want to thank you. Thank you that we can be more like you and that we can make a difference in this world in the power of your spirit through your son. Lord, to honor you as our heavenly father. And so we pray, do that very work in us, transform us, and then transform the world around us. We pray it in Jesus' name and everybody said, amen. Thanks for listening to today's podcast. If today you made a decision to follow Jesus, congratulations. It's one of the best decisions you've ever made. And we as a church want to help you with your next steps. You see, we have a free gift we'd like to give you. And in order for you to receive that gift, all you have to do is visit mycalvary.com forward slash begin. Don't forget to tune in next week for our next podcast. God bless you.